0: This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional
1: implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Thanks for downloading Polar Geopolitics. Please consider rating, reviewing and subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Here on episode 33, we'll be hearing from Dr. Mike Svega founding director of the Polar Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. I had a chance to speak to Mike while he was back home in Fairbanks, literally at the center of the American Arctic in Alaska. As one of the top U.S. experts on the Arctic and Antarctica, he had a wide range of insights to share on how the Biden administration can be expected to approach the polar regions and where they'll be placed on the political agenda.
0: The Arctic will be uh, one of many priorities for the Biden administration and the Antarctic as well, but not immediately. You know, there's a lot of pressing issues globally, mostly domestically, the pandemic, the economy, social justice issues that I think the administration is, in my opinion, rightfully so, focused on. But they also have very skilled people within this administration already that can work on a number of different different things. And we see Arctic-related and Antarctic-related things happening. They may not say the polar regions on them, but they're related. Appointing Secretary Kerry as the special envoy for climate. That's a significant message to the global community uh, and, and domestically as well, uh, because obviously the Arctic is impacted. Right, it's, The Arctic is warming more, almost three times as fast as the rest of the globe. So having someone like Secretary Kerry at the helm of uh, climate policy for the United States internationally, that's a signal to all of us who focus on the polar regions as, in my opinion, a good thing. Having Gina McCarthy, the former administrator of EPA, now leading our domestic climate agenda, that sends a message because you know, my home state, Alaska, is obviously one of the 50 states. So it, these, these do not necessarily say the Arctic or Antarctic in them, but they're encompassed in, in at least those signalings coming from the administration at the current time. There's a third part of this Venn diagram. International Special Envoy, uh, domestic lead for climate, the second, the third part of the, the, the Venn diagram, in my mind, is the Biden administration's very vocal stand on fact-based research-driven policy decisions. Well, that's a signal to, to all that work in, in the policy forum, but certainly the Arctic research and Antarctic research, that they will uh, lead by by the results of their work their work will inform policy. There is this nexus between research and, and policy. So all of those things, uh, for someone like me who focuses on the polar regions, all of those things ring loud, true, and, and bring some some hope to the work that needs to get done in the short term, midterm, and long term. In terms of where the, the, the administration goes with an Arctic and Antarctic policies and their posture towards the Arctic, I think we have yet to see what that looks like, but we can infer. We can infer that the United States will take on a more robust effort within and around the Arctic Council. It is not as if we had abandoned the Arctic Council, uh, but in my opinion, you should not give up leadership roles in fora like that. Uh, I think it's okay to say the words climate change. It's okay to talk about the impacts of climate change. And I think it's a welcome to all of us that the United States has said that they will come back to the Paris Agreement all of that has, has implications for the North, because let's face it, the United States, countries around the world, perhaps wouldn't be focused as much on the Arctic as they are. If unfortunately, we didn't have a shrinking ice cap and a new ocean opening with access to shipping routes and commodities and all those issues. So uh, you'll see a lot more multilateral uh, relationships uh, being, frankly, mended over a four-year period where they, they they have decayed. There's trust to rebuild with many of our allies in the North Atlantic uh, and then the the Atlantic Treaty and uh, this wonderful transatlantic relationship that needs to grow. I think you'll see uh, outreach to uh, like minded Asian countries, again, across all portfolios of our foreign policy, but it impacts the Arctic because the Arctic still is relatively a zone of peace and cooperation. So we'll see that kind of outreach at the international level uh, engagement at the Arctic Council, engagement at the IMO. Uh, Engagement on on issues that impact us all. Um, So, you know, I I have a a bright outlook for the U.S. engagement and leadership uh, in the Arctic and in the Antarctic. Uh, And a lot of that filter goes through some open, wide-eyed, opened foreign policy and security issues. Eyes wide open on resource development and shipping, and who's trying to inform uh, and frankly, influence the future Arctic. Which countries are trying to influence and inform it? Same with the Antarctic. Which countries are are trying to influence and inform? And I think the United States and and partner nations have a really strong role to play in shaping uh, those narratives and those actions in an internationally rules-based structure. Uh, And I think the Biden administration, I'm confident the Biden administration will will embrace what I've just said over the last few minutes.
1: You mentioned uh, their eyes wide open. That sounds like there's more to that comment uh, than uh, seems very suggestive. Could you perhaps expand upon that, what what you mean by eyes wide open?
0: Yeah, my my, my response to that is exactly. Uh, there was more to that phrase than, than just a few words. Uh, you know, the, the Arctic, first of all, it's not the Wild West. There are international rules of engagement. There are governance structures. There are agreements in place or binding agreements in place. But, but we can't ignore, but uh, we should put in context, we can't ignore what is happening uh, along the Northern Sea route, uh, not just, I mean, significant economic development, right, 20 25% of Russia's GDP somehow originates in the Arctic through oil and gas development or mineral resource extraction. Uh, and depending on which economist you speak to, you get some different numbers. Either way, it's a significant part of, of the Russian economy well into the future. Uh, And President Putin has put a lot of investment along the Northern Sea route and has attracted investment from China and Japan uh, and Total, French company, oil company, others, into the Northern Sea route. But we also see a significant rebuild and expansion of military assets there. So eyes wide open. I think the United States and and, uh, like-minded nations should be vigilant and should be diligent about the buildup there, understanding full well that it is the Arctic is a really important component of the Russian economy and the Russian culture, and it's part of their DNA. Uh, Nevertheless, I think we need to be diligent about this uh, and set it into context. Also, the ascension of China, uh, although not a military force in the Arctic, they certainly would like to play a stronger role in uh, influencing the discussion around the Arctic. They certainly are investing billions of dollars into the northern sea route. And the amal Peninsula and LNG investments. Uh, so we should be diligent about that. If we look at track records of what China has done elsewhere in the world, including Africa, you know, soft power, uh, economic power. Again, diligent and vigilant within context. Um, I don't think we're going to go to war tomorrow in the Arctic. If there is a conflict, it's because of a spillover or an accident or miscommunication. Uh, but there are non-Arctic players that haven't, have equities in the, in the Arctic and, and, China is one of them. But pretty much the eight Arctic nations, um, know, uh, have made claims to territory. It's governed. It is not the Wild West, but we need to take, we need to take eyes wide open on this, uh, especially with, uh, activities off the coast of Norway by Russia, flyovers, in the Baltic, uh, the Barents Sea. There's a lot of activity happening in the North and we're all trying to make better sense of it uh, since sometimes it's transparent and sometimes it is not. And and if I could just take this one step further, you know, it's best sometimes to describe, at least it's been helpful to me to describe the Arctic through some lenses. And and if we look at this narrative of great power competition, which should not define the North, the North should not be defined as a great power competition. It should be mostly defined as, as a zone of cooperation with an eye towards uh, competition, and this competition is manageable at the current moment, but if you look at the motives of the of, of china russia u s and the Arctic, um, I've used the game analogy to help uh, describe what's happening uh, through those countries' lines. If you look at Russia, and when I say you know there's you know, there could be competition, there is competition, but we need to be diligent um, If you look at what's happening in Russia, well you know you have a a large nation. It's enormous nation with a dependence on resource extraction. And so it would make sense that if you were the leader of that nation, you would want to protect your interests. I get that. You may not like it, but I certainly get it. Uh, you also have a retreating ice from a northern coast of Russia, which exposes that coastline. So from their own homeland security perspective, I get it. I understand why you would want to protect that environment. But you have a an economy that's that's hurting. It's been sanctioned over and over again oil and gas development is depressed, uh, and a declining population. So to me, Russia, and again, not in a pejorative manner, Russia is playing the game survivor. What do they have, uh, aside from nuclear weapons, that that they can sell, leverage to fuel an economy? That's resource development, a lot of that coming from the Arctic. So in in a non-pejorative game analogy, I have said that Russia plays the game survivor, not just in the Arctic, but elsewhere as well. China has played the game go, long-term, strategic, purposeful, decades-long, top-down administration, top-down government. So China can wait things out. They can invest long-term because uh, their horizon is not an election cycle like in the US. It just isn't. Uh, and ours in the US is an election cycle. Just, just is, whether it's two or four years or six years. So China plays the game go. We see it globally. We see it for decades coming, and it'll be decades going forward. When you put the Arctic in the United States, let's just say in the defense posture, in the national security posture, when you you now have put the Arctic as something that the Pentagon and our defense apparatus and our security apparatus need to think about, well, that's just one more circle on the Twister game board. So to me, the United States plays the game Twister. Not a bad, not a pejorative statement. It's just that we are stretched as a global power. We've got one hand in the Baltic, one in the Mediterranean, one in the North Atlantic, one in the Pacific, one in the Ch- South China Sea. And now you have an opening Arctic that the US must monitor, make sure we have deterrence, make sure we're working with allies. So that's what I talk about, vigilance and diligence. As this new ocean opens, lots of attraction, not just from the eight Arctic nations, but from others. and And each of these three, if you want to call them great powers, all have some equities in here, whether it's economic or national security or just uh, just landscape, but they all have – the three have equities, as do the other seven Arctic nations to join the United States.
1: I was reading um, some testimony you gave uh, before the U.S. Senate, and uh, you uh, put together the idea that the concept of seven seas as a way the United States should engage with the Arctic. Perhaps you could go over that as a way to sort of map out how the Biden administration could perhaps deepen its engagement in the Arctic.
0: Yeah, well, thank thank you for for noting that framework. Uh, With full disclosure, that framework came out of frustration. Um, I have been... Uh, asked by by members of Congress and others to answer the following question. Why is the Arctic important? Why should I care? I, I have a lot going on. Is this just a passing fad or is the Arctic something? And literally, I've had had members and others ask me, is the Arctic a thing? Well, yes, the Arctic is a thing. And here's why the United States and other nations should care about the Arctic. So to me, this concept that I came up with, which was navigating the Arctic's seven seas, was a way to communicate To leadership in the United States, and now since it's been used elsewhere around the globe. But for me, if the Biden administration is looking for ways to conceptualize the Arctic, and if the Biden administration is looking for ways to figure out what the US equities are in the Arctic, and if the Biden administration is looking for ways to um, attach the importance of the Arctic to each of the federal agencies, this might be one way to do it because the Arctic is kind of like climate change. Big, big issue, right? Very complex, uh, but but it's not in front of you all day long, and you've got a lot of other things going on. So how do you put into a framework um, a big idea, or in this case, a big a big landscape, but small community, a big landscape like the Arctic, and tell a senator, a congressman, uh, a prime minister, whomever that they need to care about it. And and this came out actually, I developed this on a run one night, trying to figure out how I could communicate this better. So to me, there are seven key drivers that are that are at play at the Arctic. Now, they could be NQs or five L's or pick pick your favorite letter. But to me it was C's because I started thinking about what are the primary drivers in the Arctic. Well, clearly, number one is climate. Right? That that is a key driver. Nearly three times heating, more than three times, and I use the word heating purposely three times as fast as anywhere else on the on the planet. So that's one C and the more I went through the one, the more I came up with these seven Cs and of course the, the narrative navigating the Arctic seven seas came up but the second C the first C climate is you know self descriptive climate is real climate change is real it is rapid and it's just relentless. This is not changing anytime soon no matter what we do in the near near decade or two. But the second key driver was is commodities oil, gas, strategic minerals, you know, the Arctic is a warehouse of all of these. And so that is a driver. Now, there hasn't been a giant boom, but we certainly have seen the ups and downs of these commodities and commodity prices and demand will structure, will dictate the degree to which these resources are developed. But if the polar ice cap, the the Arctic ice cap wasn't melting, you wouldn't have access to these commodities. So to me, that was number two. And it's not just a U.S. issue. These are, these are circumpolar global issues. So first is climate. Second is commodities. Third is commerce. To me, that meant shipping. This can use different narrative, but it's shipping. And the idea of the expansion of the Northern Sea Route, which has been used, by the way, destinational in the Russian Federation for decades back to the Soviet Union. So that's not new. What's new is that the Northern Sea Route is becoming a, a global sea route. There really are ice-reinforced LNG tankers built in shipyards of South Korea in the Northern Sea Route, taking Russian LNG to market in Asia. Well, that to me, that's a that's a real forceful example of a global Arctic. So commerce, it will never rival the Panama Canal or the Suez Canal. But nevertheless, we see it even this winter. There's, there's been a winter transect of the Northern Sea Route to market. So commerce, whether it's on the Northern Sea Route side, the Russian side, here off the coast of Alaska, which hasn't yet happened, but could. Uh, and then uh, the promise, of course, Norway, Sweden, Finland and uh, maritime activity there. The fourth is connectivity. That's not just broadband, although broadband in the Arctic needs to improve. You know, in the Arctic, there isn't a the digital divide. There's a digital abyss in a lot of places, but it's not just internet connectivity. I'm talking about roads and rail and ports and community to community. We still have communities that can't go to another community without flying to another community, at least in the North American Arctic. So connectivity is a big area, whether it's Biden administration or anybody in the North. Communities is my fifth C. And here I'm thinking of all of our communities, but in particular, the indigenous communities of the North that will tell you security to them means something totally different than it would mean to a Pentagon or a Defense Department. Security to these communities means being able to live in their community because coastal erosion is happening at an incredible rate, but these communities are going to have to move. We actually have Arctic refugees. It's happening in real time, but they also need access to water and food security and just workforce security. So there's there's a community aspect. Sixth C is cooperation. I mean, there is a lot of cooperation in the north, a lot, and mostly through the Arctic Council, but not solely through the Arctic Council. The Arctic Coast Guard Forum, Uh, there are many fora around the Arctic that are instilling upon the, the leadership and communities this idea of cooperating in the Arctic. And look, we cooperate, if you want to look just Russia, we cooperate with the Russians mostly in two places, the International Space Station and in the Arctic. We have agreements with the Russians right here in my home state, the maritime border between Alaska and Russia, along the Bering Sea and the Bering Strait. We have agreements to monitor shipping, a new one on on pollution uh, in, in the bearing. So there's a lots of cooperation that needs to stay in place. And finally, the final C is competition. And that's where it's everything from defense competition to economic competition. But mostly it is on the national security and defense posture, whether it's the United States, North America, NATO, Russia. This is real. There's about two dozen or so miles from my home are the most advanced fighter planes on the wall, the F-35s. And 100 miles from my doorstep is the missile defense system. So you know, the Arctic has been militarized. It's going to continue to be militarized, but we need to um, have more cooperation to put into perspective this competition. So to me, if you're in the Biden administration and you're thinking about the ways in which the U.S. should approach the Arctic, this at least provides seven buckets, all interrelated, but seven buckets where you can see each of your federal agencies having interest in and equity in the future Arctic, whether it's building a port in Nome, because the United States does not have an Arctic port at all along its Arctic coastline, uh, or it's in commerce, workforce, commodity development. These seven seas, each of which are a lecture in and of itself, provide at least some framework for us to be thinking about the Arctic, not just from a policy perspective, but maybe just from the general
1: public perspective. I want to touch upon some of these things um, <laughs> a little bit more. I know, you're first of all, you're, you're a geographer by training, perhaps we can do a little geography here in the Arctic, and of course <laughs> you're being based in Alaska, that being what makes the United States a, a, an Arctic country. Perhaps you could talk a bit about Alaska and some of the uh, issues particular to Alaska, and, and that seems to be one area where there will be a significant change from Trump to Biden in terms of a resource extraction or a commodities in, in your 7C framework. Perhaps you could talk a bit about some of the changes you expect that will take place for your home state. And also you mentioned the Bering Strait, which I find very interesting, and, and perhaps not talked about a Enough in terms of Arctic geopolitics, being of course uh, one of the uh, one of the gateways to the Arctic that a lot of the commerce and, and other um, communications will travel through. Uh, perhaps you could say a bit more about the Bering Strait and some of the um, some of the developments you see there going forward.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for, for both of those and on the spotlighting on on the state of Alaska. So yes, there, there's going to be a drastic change uh, in the, the way in which the Biden administration and the Trump administration approached at least the state of Alaska. Uh, the first would be that the, Biden, the, the Trump administration looked at the Arctic. And, and, and by the way, it's, it's, it, it's not, it, it wasn't unwarranted, but in my opinion, perhaps maybe too hawkish. Um, a lot of the filter through the, about the Arctic was about uh, this great power competition and looking at the Arctic through two lenses. One defense posture and one an economic development, mostly oil and gas extraction filter. Now, I absolutely get the idea that you want to have a defense posture in the north that's applicable to whatever the situation is, and we talked about the the buildup of the, of the northern sea route and the Russia's installation buildup and expansion along their Arctic coastline. Everything from Franz Josef Land, the geographer in me comes out, to uh, the Wrangell Island, which you know in Arctic terms, Wrangell Island and Alaska, that's about a stone's throw. So, when you have uh, listening stations, radar stations, air force stations spanning the entire northern sea route, the entire northern border of the of uh, Russia's border, that gets the attention of the United States and particularly Alaska. And I get that. Uh, so I understand the Trump position there, and uh, I think there needs does need to be diligence and investment in the state of Alaska second is the Trump administration really did have a focus on oil and gas development, opening up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, uh, wanting to push for offshore oil and gas development. understand that. I think that's where you will see the big difference here with the Biden administration. The Biden administration will have a less hawkish view on oil and gas development offshore or in new areas that are currently not out for exploration. Part of that is the climate ethos of this administration. Uh, the others is taking a look at what industry is looking for. To drill, to explore and drill and extract and get to market oil and gas from the Arctic is an expensive endeavor. However, Alaska is rich in oil and natural gas, and we built a state on oil. You know, somewhere, somewhere north of 70, 80% of our industry somehow is related to oil and gas, mostly oil. Our 800 plus mile pipeline from from Prudhoe Bay to to Valdez is the lifeblood of this state, and so to cut off all oil and gas development in, in the state of Alaska would be basically putting the lights out on a whole entire state until there is a transition to other to other industry. The state of Alaska does not have a diversified industry at all. It's it's oil gas. There's fisheries, but that's that's not a lot. There's timber, but that's not a lot, and there's very little value add industry up here. So for decades, we have uh, benefited from oil and some gas development. There is a huge reservoir of natural natural gas on the north slope of Alaska, some very close to current development, which is what many Alaskans, certainly the government of the state of Alaska, is looking to develop as well to get that LNG to market mostly to Asian markets so that the state of Alaska can have an, uh, an income that is... At a level that can sustain a state, but there will be—I predict—over the next four years, there will be lots of lawsuits. There will be lots of narratives pitting the federal government against the state of Alaska vis-a-vis resource development. There's a second part of this. So LNG and, and oil are in one bucket, in my literally and figuratively, in another bucket. Not to be—I think—understated is the degree to which the state of Alaska holds. In its resource base, critical strategic minerals. It's a storehouse of these minerals that we need. We need for our phones and our modern day of life. And as we know, China has sort of cornered the market on a lot of these resources. Well, here in in a state, part of the United States, you have significant resources throughout the state. The problem is there are no roads. There is no infrastructure to get to these places, and a lot of these places are pristine. And so you'll see a debate within our own state, but you'll see a federal state discussion on this as well but in my opinion in mike's opinion there's a there's a national imperative to at least explore and develop some of these resources so that the united states and other countries can diversify the dependence that we have on one particular country to feed that resource for the cell phones and everything else that we that we use so to me i hope i answered this question but but the state of alaska will have a different posture uh with the biden administration They did with the Trump administration vis a vis resource extraction, knowing full well I live in a state that is so dependent on the resource extraction, you just can't cut it off. There must be some transition to another energy source and to other workforce development. So, to me, that's the state of Alaska play on that. uh, And I'm happy to talk more about that, or we can switch to the Bering Strait if you'd like. To me, it's a story that hasn't really had a lot of, of attention. The Bering Strait, of course, is our. Maritime border between Russia and Alaska. It is so strategic, not just because it's 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 50 plus miles from Alaska to Russia, but we, there's a little diameter, and Big Dynamite, which are a couple of miles apart from each other. One is U.S. Alaska, one is Russia. Uh, this is a very traditional. I mean, you know, before the Cold War, uh, and 100 years ago, Native populations crossed that ice and, and ocean and visited each other. So single language, lots of cultural ties here. But more and more, as the, as the Bering Strait becomes much more of a transport corridor, you will see more attention given to it. And the transportation corridor is mostly with lots of fisheries, not just from Alaska and Russia, but you have interests from Asian countries to fish the North Pacific, the Bering Sea, up into the Bering Strait and international waters. You see far more transports now of LNG from the Northern Sea Route, from the Amal Peninsula, down the Bering Strait to markets in Asia, which cuts off a considerable amount of time in shipping. And if you can cut a day off in shipping, you've made more money. And we suspect that there will be far more activity of, of LNG tankers through the Bering Strait. With that brings you know opportunity for global trade, but it also brings the fear that there could be an oil and gas spill in this region. Um, it's also a corridor. You can be twelve miles off the coast of Alaska, and you are in international waters legally. Our fishermen can be two hundred miles off coast, totally within their legal limits to fish. And here you could have a conflict, like we saw last summer. There was a Navy exercise in the Russian Federation in international waters, twelve miles off more than twelve miles off the coast of the state of Alaska, and we had our fishermen, operating legally within the 200-mile exclusive economic zone of the United States off the coast of Alaska, and the two intersected, there was the potential for a conflict there. Good thing that there was not, but the Russian Navy certainly made their presence known to those fishermen who were fishing legally, and these are the things that we worry about. We worry about a conflict, a miscommunication, a mistake being made in that area. But the more and more that the Bering Strait is navigable, a couple of years ago there was no ice in the Bering Strait in the month of March, which is when it should be at its maximum. So we're seeing ice diminish at an alarming rate, making this international strait, because it is international waters, far more navigable, which means, you know, nations can transect this legally. So, you know, what does this mean for Russia? What does it mean for Alaska and the US? What does it mean for uh, countries from Asia who would like to to fish in this region and then get it up, up into the to the Arctic Ocean where there's different governance structures. So to me, the Bering Strait is a really critical region. It's an important region. It's one where the United States should have uh, a lot more presence. There should be a port in Nome, as I have advocated for. That could be a Coast Guard haven for search and rescue, which we're all worried about. Oil spill, which we're all worried about. Entry to the United States for homeland security. It could even hold. Maybe at some point uh, a Navy vessel of the United States, but you certainly need a port in the north along the Bering Strait. And as I said before, the United States does not have a port along its Arctic coastline.
1: Which is pretty shocking, especially uh, considering all the activity that you foresee taking place there in the Bering uh, Strait, uh, Mike. And you also mentioned earlier uh, the the defense posture, something that uh, that the Trump administration was rather focused on, and you think that was maybe not a not a bad idea, but the Biden administration might not be quite a, as single minded about that particular aspect. But there was in the last last months really of the Trump administration several important Arctic strategies uh, issued by um, by uh, U.S. Uh, military services. It was the Navy uh, had this Blue Arctic strategy. The Air Force came out with an Arctic strategy. Little before that, uh, the Coast Guard and I think. I think also the Department of Defense in general came out with an Arctic strategy. Now under a new administration, how do you see these being implemented and how will they shape U.S. policy in the Arctic going forward?
0: That's a great question. And you're right. To me, there was this, um, I've called it the quickening of the Arctic, a lot more activity. You could also throw in your, your accurate list of the appointment of Jim DeHart as the U.S. coordinator for the Arctic out of the State Department. You can also add to your your list in more investments in polar security cutters, otherwise known as icebreakers. Um, you could add to that the United States engaged in uh, operations with NATO, like Trident Junction off the coast of Norway. You could add to that the U.S. decision to open a consulate and Nuke uh, as another one. So there's just been this quickening, right, of federal agencies recognizing, uh, you know, and some credit to the Trump administration for realizing, you know, that the Arctic really is important across a whole area of, of issues, including the State Department. Um, I think this the new administration and Secretary of Defense, Austin, will, it, it, it is my hope that what we do is we take these, what are now separate strategies, although there's some overlap. We have a Navy strategy, as you pointed out. We have a Coast Guard strategy, as you pointed out. We have a uh, an Army strategy in, uh, almost being ready to release. And, and so you have a number of these strategies out What we don't have is an overarching United States, either Department of Defense or United States whole-of-government approach to the Arctic. And you hear out of the Biden administration these words, whole-of-government. You hear it everywhere, whether it's climate or economics or the pandemic. Um, And that's really hard to do. I mean, think about our own organizations that we work in. I mean, sometimes you can't get the agreement on what time it is, never mind whole-of-government approach. So, But what what I think is going to happen, my sense is, that uh, the secretary of defense will take because the arctic will be important to this administration will take these what are now seemingly siloed strategies and look for those places where they overlap and there are overlapping interests the coast guard to the navy that's that's a given the complement i mean 70% or so of the military's assets in the arctic come from the air force whether it's satellite or planes um, and so i think you'll see the integration where it makes sense and leveraging the vision, the mission, the mission sets, but also the money. In mean, the Pentagon, we've got three quarters of a trillion dollar budget, but there's not a whole lot more money left here. But something has to happen. So I see I see this area of discussion to happen within the Pentagon, not any time in the next few days, but trying to get some cohesive approach to the Arctic when it comes to US national defense, and importantly, in my opinion, how that all fits into a NATO structure and strategy and how it complements, you know, allied nations. I see that happening. I'm not Pollyanna about it. It's not going to happen tomorrow, nor is it going to be easy. But I think that and I think the branches all see the value of this. Again, being stretched in my game analogy, playing the Twister game. They've got a lot of stuff going on in hot spots around the world. The Arctic isn't the hot spot yet, nor do we want it to be. But I see there be a more cohesive, allowing the branches to be what they need to be. Uh, for their own mission sets, but also seeing some overlap. You know, perhaps a phrase from from a uh, from a former position I've used, which is integrated autonomy. I'm looking for that integrated autonomy within a Department of Defense or Homeland Security or Commerce. Pick any of the federal agencies in the U.S. government. Integrated autonomy. You have to have your mission sets, but they should be integrated uh, where they can be across a broader sense. To me, the Arctic is a perfect place for some integrated. Autonomy, and I think you'll see more of that coming up in the future. And I also see a lot more uh, work to be done and, and cooperation with NATO, with the Kingdom of Denmark because of Greenland and the Faroe Islands, and how strategic Greenland is—not uh, just for the kingdom, but also for for NATO and allies there. So I see a lot more. And interesting, I, I think you'll see a lot more cooperation in areas outside of the Department of Defense, like in research. That's been going on, but I think research needs to be uh, multinational. It's also science diplomacy is also a very good thing to support and enhance and invest in uh, as we try to understand the changes of the Arctic but also it's it's a very good uh, I wouldn't call it soft power, but I would call it more about the more on the diplomacy side related to the Arctic
1: mean a couple of examples of uh, science diplomacy in the Arctic between the United States and Greenland, as you mentioned there, and also mm-hmm. I would like to Reference, like another quote from your Senate testimony that I thought was uh, quite uh, quite to the point, and that was, uh, Greenland is emblematic of the emerged Arctic. So emerged as in the Arctic has already emerged. It's not a, a, a future issue. It's a, it's a here and now issue. And a couple of these initiatives uh, that uh, could fall under science diplomacy are these uh, two um, educational initiatives, And I think uh, your university there in Fairbanks, Alaska is, is one of the partners in this Arctic education Alliance. And also this um, leveraging decades of Arctic and mine training experience to assist Greenland. Another, I think administered through the state department, a way to use us uh, knowledge in mining and other issues to really engage with Greenland. Could you perhaps uh, talk about Greenland in general and a couple of these projects in particular?
0: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Greenland to me is like the Northern Sea Route, emblematic of the New North. I mean, it just is, in my opinion. If you look at Greenland, 55,000 or so individuals there, a robust indigenous population, obviously, cultural ties, socioeconomic ties, a way of life that was in rhythm for, you know, eons with the landscape. But thrust upon it is this incredible change, incredible change. So if you're looking for something emblematic of the north, think about Greenland. Think about the impact of climate change on that Greenland ice sheet. That impacts the world. Climate change local, regional, globally. Uh, When you think about issues related to indigenous populations, what indigenous populations uh, have gone through and endured for a long time, there there are some good stories. And unfortunately, there are some very, very bad stories here. Uh, But when you think about indigenous populations uh, trying to Hang on to culture, language, subsistence, ways of life, yet thrust into a more broader geopolitical arena. uh, Look at Greenland, where you have for a long time U.S. interests and investments with the approval of the kingdom of Denmark. uh, But you have now, in a geostrategic manner, Greenland is so strategic to the kingdom but also to allies like the United States and, and NATO. So you have a renewed interest there certainly by China, who would like to invest more there, Uh, certainly by the United States, by planting uh, the seeds of a consulate and then growing a consulate in nuke. That that is diplomatic, but let's call it also what it is as well. That's also a counter to other nations, particularly China, uh, who would like to have more influence there. It's a statement that Greenland is important to the United States. Uh, When you think about the changing oceans, ocean acidification, rising temperatures, methane release, How you manage your fisheries. I mean, Greenland is so dependent on its fishery, as is the state of Alaska, as are parts of Canada, as are parts of all of the eight Arctic nations. So if you want to look at fisheries and commerce and trade, that's a big part of Greenland's future tourism. I mean, I could keep going. Tourism. People are lured to the north, just as they have been to Iceland, who the country has been brilliant about marketing its unique landscape. Well, Greenland, too, would like to market their landscape to diversify their economy. And there is a global interest in the Arctic. So Greenland's looking to to capitalize on that. Strategic minerals. Greenland has many strategic minerals uh, that many companies would like to develop. That's emblematic of the New North. So I could keep going here. But if you're looking at any cultural, social, political, economic, security, environmental issue, you can capture it in one way or another in Greenland. And that's why I said that it is emblematic of the new North. Because as you've noted, the Arctic is not emerging. It's emerged. We are done here. The Arctic is part of the broader geopolitical landscape. Whether we like it, they like it or not. Um, and it's how we manage this through that cooperation I talked about, which will really be the key as to how we function in the North and what the North looks like uh, for decades to come. To to follow up on your note about uh, supporting Uh, greenland through a number of exchange programs and training programs very pleased that my former university that i still have a a professor's affiliation with at the international arctic research center um, is leveraging the expertise that has been honed over decades of work here in the state of alaska and now can transfer the lessons learned in the training to greenland Uh, we have a strong alaska and canada and, and greenland have a strong relationship actually all of the North American Arctic, Alaska, Northern Canada, Greenland. You should see that, not north-south. Look at it east-west, just one time on a map, and you'll see you will see why there's such affinity there and the connections there, geographically, culturally, linguistically. I think it's important, sure it's it's a it's a soft power issue, it's an education issue, it's a training issue, but to have US universities and and training expertise helping Greenland advance in areas strategic to their attempts to diversify the economy is significant, and I think you will see more of that uh, going forward. Not just from the United States. You know, obviously they have strong relationships with Canada, strong relationships with Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and of course the, the support that they get from the Kingdom. So, you know, Greenland to me is just such a dynamic landscape, literally and figuratively. You can't ignore it, nor should you.
1: Do you want to um, perhaps say a few words about where you see U.S. Antarctic policies going under the Biden administration.
0: Yeah, thank you for reminding everyone that we that not just our Polar Institute looks at the Antarctic, but the Antarctic too is is important. And perhaps it doesn't get the focus because there aren't you know settlements and people living down there, aside from our researchers. But the Antarctic is going through uh, climate upheaval. As as the North is, as you know pick your favorite landscape on the planet. Unfortunately, it's being impacted. You know, the Biden administration uh, will continue to support the National Science Foundation's significant investment in in, in the Antarctic uh, for research, no doubt, to try to understand not just the dynamics of change down there, because I think they we kind of know a lot, not everything, about what the processes are. There's a lot to learn, of course, in this matter, but but the marine-terrestrial interaction, ice shelves and ice sheets interaction with a warming ocean and how that warming ocean and, and ocean flow is eating, literally eating away at the bottom of these ice shelves, and that's why they're collapsing. And what that means, not just for Antarctica, and certainly not for the United States, the global implications from the Arctic to the Antarctic of climate change, actually, they cannot be overstated. A collapsing ice sheet in Greenland Uh, the Greenland ice sheet melting at an incredible rate. And at the same time, watching Antarctica melt and uh, lose its ice sheets that eventually will melt and raise the global sea level. It may not happen in the next 20, 30, 40 years as dramatic, but this is something we're going to have to live with as a society. And I think the Biden administration understands, again, I mean, just incredible statements to have a special envoy for climate and a leader like Gina McCarthy, leading a domestic climate office, tells you what you need to know about the global view of this administration when it comes to climate. The Antarctic is so important as one of the refrigerators of our global climate system. Uh, We're not talking about weather here. We're talking about the climate of our globe. And the Arctic and the Antarctic are key to keeping uh, what we know is fairly stable, what we have enjoyed as human beings, fairly stable climate for so long. And the impact of human-induced climate change uh, on the polar regions is significant, and so that's why I believe that this administration will take a you know, more aggressive stand on when they can more investments in the Antarctic. Um, I think that there will be more international uh, research efforts. I mean, it's an incredibly cooperative region right now under treaty, but also there are some there are some storm clouds. They're small, they're little clouds. The wind hasn't picked up yet. But you know, there's a lot of resources in the Antarctic, and as as the global populations grow and access to a lot of these resources begins to open, um, I'm not suggesting that in the next 50 or 100 years there's going to be a race to oil and gas and a race, a race to rare earths in in the Antarctic. But you know, 100 years ago, I don't know many people who would have predicted what we see today in the Arctic, uh, because it was a zone where You know, Mary Shelley wrote her Frankenstein novel was based out of the Arctic. So, you know, the Arctic was this mythical place removed. Well, the Antarctic in a lot of our minds is this mythical place down south somewhere that's frozen. But in the next hundred years, it may look very different. And so I can see the U.S. diplomatic focus on the Arctic, on the Antarctic, not so much in a quickening pace, but being mindful of the resources there the managing of the krill and other other fisheries in that region, the support of a Biden administration for uh, marine-protected areas, I think, will be solid, secure, and may even be enhanced to cordon off, my term, cordon off large sections of the Southern Ocean as marine-protected areas because of its uniqueness, but also ways in which to manage that area uh, under treaty. You might see the Biden administration be far more forceful in trying to not just expand those, but maybe build even more with international cooperation. So that's what I think about this administration focus on research in the Antarctic, focused on maritime uh, marine protected areas, continued focus on staying engaged with the Antarctic Treaty uh, and abiding by it, and looking at ways to uh, provide uh, more resources. That will be challenged for more research in the Antarctic, because it is absolutely critical to our understanding of what the future plan will look like.
1: Well, you're certainly correct that it's hard to imagine what the Arctic or Antarctic will look like in 100 years. But I think we've got a better idea after speaking to you, Mike, both the next four years, perhaps, as some of the priorities and directions that the uh, Biden administration will um, will pursue in uh, the next uh, couple of years in the United States. So Dr. Mike Srega, director of the Polar Institute and director of the Global Risk and Resilience Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast.